Let's go a different route today. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to an old familiar text for me. Psalm 23. I used to preach this text every year. Took a break for two or three years. It had been two years ago, I, this month, two years ago, preached from this text. As a matter of fact, I have three or four notebooks full of notes that I travel with. And every now and again, I'll be sitting on a church pew somewhere in a revival. God will nudge my heart about this little verse that we're preaching from today. God put it in my heart at my mother's graveside back so long ago. And uh, I probably will mention that to you in the introduction. Psalm 23, let's stand together. We'll read all six verses. I'm interested in verse 4. And I'm interested in crossing the valleys of life. Again, thank you so much for being here today. And for those of you visiting, please come back. We want you to come back and be a part of our services. You've honored us with your presence today. Psalm 23. I think most of us can quote the psalm, can't we? It's those, the most familiar of all, the 150 psalms. The Bible says, the Lord. If you take those two words out of this psalm, you don't have anything worth reading. The whole psalm is built on these two words, the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Brother Tommy, would you pray for us, please, dear brother? Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. David is the penman of... Uh, over half of the Psalms in the Psalter were convinced he's an old man when he pinned down Psalm 23 and probably most of the Psalms that he did pin down. I remember for a lot of years in the pastorate, um, there were subjects um, that just seemed beneath my, or, or excuse me, above my reach. I just couldn't quite attain to them. I was familiar with them academically, but just had not experienced a lot of <clears throat> what I might would preach regarding trials or afflictions or something along that line. I never felt myself really qualified. Of course, we went through a couple of years. I've referred to it without giving you any of the details. Uh, a lot now for nearly 12 years. Um, but after a couple of uh, pretty harsh years of our lives, um, it seemed like that became my uh, my heartbeat for a number of years. I field phone calls every day. I would say 95 out of 100 of those are people who are uh, going through some type of trial. And so God doesn't waste anything. I told Brother Terrence, as a matter of fact, at Sanctuary Hospice, I said, you don't, you don't even realize it. But uh, you're going to pull from this well of experience for the rest of your days. There'll be families that you'll help. There'll be husbands and wives and children and congregations you'll help. And you won't even realize what you've said till you long walk away. But you're going to pull from this well all the days of your life. And you will. 
Anybody that goes through adversity will do that. Um, though I, there was a time in my life I didn't feel qualified to preach on trials and afflictions. David is well qualified. Being the penman of this psalm and so many psalms, he could talk to you today if he were here about the valley of suffering. He knew what it was for King Saul to hunt him like a wild animal for 10 years. A man, the Bible says, stood head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. He knew better. He was jealous and caused David a lot of pain because of it. His favorite son, David's favorite son, Absalom, stole some of the hearts of his people away from him, tried to lead a revolt. He meant to have the throne. Hurt him. Hurt him deeply. He could talk to us about the valley of slander. David knew what it was for people to take campaign against him and offer words against him. He was lied on, smeared. He could talk to us about that. He could talk to us about, about the valley of sin. He wouldn't mix in Freudian psychology. He wouldn't tell you that your sin is because your mama didn't change your diaper one Saturday morning quick enough. He would tell you about his sin, that he was responsible for every bit of it. His sin with Bathsheba, his sin in having Uriah murdered, slaughtered like an animal. Um, had him sent to the front lines, told his commander when he gets there, pull all the men back. I aim for him to die, and die he did. And he took that man's wife. Can you imagine a man after God's own heart doing such a thing? He didn't call it anything except for what it was, and that's sin. Psalm 51 chronologically comes before Psalm 32, but they are what we call twin psalms. They are written out of his repentance, his sorrow for his sin. It haunted him. He could talk to us about um, the valley of sorrow. He knew what it was to take a little baby boy and lie him in the, place him in the grave. Some of you have lost children, grandchildren. I don't know what that's like. My wife miscarried before Nikki was born, um, but we never saw the child. And if we believe what the Bible teaches us about life beginning at conception, then there's a baby on the other side waiting on Kevin and Amanda. Of course, I don't think that it will be a baby. Um, I don't think there's going to be babies. I don't think Jesus is in a rocking chair rocking babies. I don't know what age we're going to be. I've heard a lot of speculation about that. I don't know what age we'll be when we get there, but it'll be the right age, I'm quite sure. He could talk to us about the Valley of Solitude there in the cave of Adullam or in the wilderness of Ziph when his close friend and companion Jonathan risked his life. That's a friend, right? A friend loveth at all times and a brother's born for adversity. There David was by himself. Perhaps you've been in a valley like that or perhaps you're there uh, now, as you read the first three verses of this particular psalm, you see the shepherd is leading his flock. And David is an old man now. He's thinking about on his younger days, in his younger days, when he was a shepherd over Jesse, his daddy's flock of sheep, all those principles of leading a flock. He thinks about that and he likens himself unto a sheep and God as unto his shepherd. He said, the Lord, that's who my shepherd is. And everything you see a shepherd doing for a flock of sheep, God has done those things for me. As a matter of fact, in the early morning hours, the shepherd would lead his sheep out of the sheepfold. Verse 2 tells us, into green pastures and beside the still waters. Um, 
to his side, restoring those that might be afflicted in some way. And now in verse number 4, he leads his flock through the valley. There is a valley in Palestine. Amanda and I got to go there. I don't know if Holly and Celia Beth, I don't know if you got to go. Fote Mikkel, he was our tour guide in the Holy Land. Brother Bearfield put the group together. And there were two areas that he wanted us to go to if we could change the itinerary. And the Valley of the Shadow of Death was one of those. I preached on it so much it did my heart good to see the Valley of the Shadow of Death. The banks are rounded pretty much throughout the whole valley. They're rounded and there's sandstone pebbles everywhere. You couldn't get close to the edge. If you had got started, you, your feet would have come out from under. You would have slid, and it would have been death. The valley of the shadow of death is about 1,500 feet deep, and it would have been sure death. Part of the area that you would fall in would be on jagged rocks. and I mean, it would crush you. It would destroy your life. It would take your life. And uh, so David, he knows that um, he knows that there were times when he was a... When he was a shepherd, shepherding the sheep, uh, when spring grazing would be passed, the summer sun is beating down upon the pasture, and now it's barren and dry. And there's nothing, but there's plenty of grazing. You've got to go to what's called the tableland. The first song that we sung, number 77, I'm pressing on the upward way. That's the idea. It's going to the tableland, Mount Carmel, going to that area where there's always grazing. There's always lush and plenty, plentiful grass. But he's got to go through that valley in order to get over to the tableland so that his flock can have something to eat. A lot of old writers, if you were to read after them, they really favored Psalm 23. As a matter of fact, you heard me mention F.W. Borum. He's one of my favorite writers. Um, he, wrote a, uh, he wrote five volumes on men and women that he had met who had a verse they were just drawn to. I remember him writing about one dear old brother. He couldn't get out of the bed. He was on his deathbed. His prayer was to be able to get up and go preach one last time. But he couldn't do it. And so what the church did was they gathered around outside his bedroom window. They raised the old window. And they pushed the bed where his face was right in the window. And he preached his favorite text. And a number of those preachers that... F.W. Borm wrote about in those life verses, a number of them claimed this verse. It's one of my favorite as well. F.B. Meyer thought it was the most familiar verse in his part of the world, in Europe, in his day. As a matter of fact, he had this to write while writing through the Psalms. He had this to write about Psalm 23. He said, in all Scripture, there is no verse more familiar than this. No Bible figure has made more lasting or indelible impression. It's been many a saint on their deathbed has claimed this verse as their own as they got ready to cross. There's been a lot, of, a lot of saints getting ready to make their journey into God's city. And this would be the, the, the towel that would moisten their brow, Psalm 23 and verse 4. There's been a many that's left for the headsman's axe as a martyr or been burned at the stake or thrown in the Roman Colosseum's to be torn asunder by lions, a lot of them made sport of and scorned in their final moments, and yet it was Psalm 23 and verse 4 that they would utter. It was um, Psalm 23 and verse 4 when the bishop of Edinburgh, 
Bishop Patterson. I do not know his first name. It's recorded. His name was Patterson, Bishop Patterson. He was a curate pronouncing death to two young women, Marion Harvey and Isabel Allison. Bishop Patterson said, these are the recorded words to Marion, said, Marion, you would never hear a curate. Now you shall hear one. They were securing them to the stake to be burned. And Marion, who was 20 years of age, said to Isabella, or said to Isabel, said, Come, Isabel, let us sing the 23rd Psalm. And the roar of the flames eventually drowned them out, but that's what they sang until their mouth and their lips were still just before they left eternity. Yea, though I left into eternity, that is. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This verse really came to live in my heart. I mentioned my mother's grave. My mom died November the 3rd of 08. We had her funeral right here. The service was held right here on November the 5th of 08. Um, Brother David Barnett and Brother Marvin Ward. Brother Marvin was her pastor when she died. They preached the funeral. We went down to Eddington Cemetery where she's buried to go sit under the tent with family. I was not angry. We'd been through so much, but I was numb. I was quite numb to all that was going on in and about our lives. And um, walking beside Amanda, in my heart, I said, Lord, you know what kind of shape I'm in. And the messages were good. The singing was good. Uh, Rita Rita sang in the service, and Marshall McLaughlin sang. And good singing, good sermons by the two preachers, but nothing really stirred me. And we don't have to be stirred, do we? I mean, the Word of God's enough. We don't have to be stirred about anything. God doesn't owe us that. But I said, I said, Lord, I need something from your Word. And the precious Holy Spirit brought this verse across my heart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I was hurting bad in those days. My wife was hurting very bad as well. The word death becomes precious to us. As a matter of fact, I'm really surprised around the funeral yesterday. Nobody quoted, myself included. Nobody quoted. The funeral home did not print in the bulletin, Psalm 23, particularly verse 4. It usually is. Somewhere at the graveside, in the funeral home, in the service, or on a bulletin, but not yesterday. It's quite unusual. Now, death really speaks to us because we know that we're all going to have to face death. But now, that's not entirely the emphasis here. He's not talking about dying. He's talking about passing through that valley, crossing that valley, which was a yearly trek through it to go to the tableland and graze the sheep and then come back up the valley uh, at a latter time. David's thoughts here, no doubt, are gathered around the earthly pilgrimage of the child of God. We're strangers passing through. And while we pass through, we're going to have to pass through some valleys. And said this in a while, so let me just remind us. We are real people. We live in a real world. And sometimes real burdens get heavy and they hurt. And life gets very trying and difficult. It's just that way. You say, preacher, it doesn't get too tough for me. It will. If you live very long, it will. Something is going to come your way that's going to try you. You say you love the Lord, that'll be tested. You say you have faith in God, that will be tested. All of us will be tested and tried along the way. 
This valley, uh, called the valley of the shadow of death, Barclay describes it in a quote as a narrow defile through the mountain range with towering walls on either side more than 1,500 feet high. He writes, in some places the floor is only 10 to 12 feet wide. It is a path that is not easy to travel because the floor surface has been badly eroded by cloudburst, forming gullies seven or eight feet deep. He went on to write, in some places the path is so narrow that flocks cannot pass or turn around. It's an unwritten law there for the shepherds. As a matter of fact, when we visited the Valley of the Shadow of Death, there was, a, there was a tall, slender Palestinian. He probably had, Amanda, I guess, nine, maybe ten sheep. And he was grazing on what little could be found there on the banks of the Valley of the Shadow of Death. There's an unwritten law. They, the, the, the shepherds, they take their, they take their flock uh, up the valley in the morning and down the valley in the afternoon or in the evening because if they met one another, they would just be at a lock. They would just be at a standstill. They're just places you cannot pass. You cannot meet anyone. We think about valleys. We think about trouble sometimes, don't we? Sure we do. Sometimes we call it storms or something along that line. But uh, even the word shadow lends itself to darkness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow, uh, shadows lends itself to a bit of darkness and hardship and uh, struggle. No doubt David would think about taking the little flock of his daddies up that valley and down that valley uh, through the course of a year, and he would think about his own life and trials that he experienced. I've often thought about the, uh, where David penned in the psalm, uh, when my heart is overwhelmed. He said, uh, he said, from the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That word overwhelm means to be clothed or covered in darkness to the point that every time you put your foot down, you're unsure of your falling. You don't know about where you are walking. You've never been this way before. And David here is thinking about these valley experiences. Consider with me, if you will, the path through the valley. This always comes out a little different for me. I don't know. I probably have preached from this verse a hundred times or better over the years it always comes out a little, little different. There's always a little different emphasis somewhere. But the path through the valley. Look at verse 2 and look at verse 3. Watch those action words. He maketh me in verse 2. He leadeth me in verse 2. He restoreth me, verse number 3. He leadeth me in verse number 3. Those are familiar, well-worn paths. That's the routine. That's the norm. But now when you go to verse number 4, now that's a winding path. It's a narrow path and a winding path. If you have to go through the path or across a valley or, uh, this year, what might you expect to find once you get there? First of all, it can be a very dark experience, can it? The valley of the shadow of death. The, the, the reason why the, the valley's been named the way it has is because it's so narrow and so deep that there's no time, even at high noon when the entire valley is lit up, there's always shadows. It's just that narrow and that deep. Did you know sometimes life can bring with it very dark experiences? Have you ever thought about, I was thinking about it early this morning, trying to get things together for, to finish John chapter number 5, just finalize things. I kept coming back to this verse. And I kept thinking about Joseph, the old patriarch Joseph. Psalm number 105 talks about how God used Joseph. Though his brothers tried to kill him, they wanted to kill him when they threw him in the pit. You remember that? They wanted to kill him. They meant to kill him. 
And then one of the brothers spoke up and said, let's don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites. And they, they would eventually put him on the auction block. And Potiphar would buy him, a captain of the guard. He would buy him and use him in his own household. And his wife, Potiphar's wife, lied on him. Now, if Potiphar had really believed it, he had had Joseph killed. He didn't believe his wife. He didn't believe the accusations. That was, that's obvious. He did not kill Joseph. He put him in prison. And according to Psalm 105, they put him in fetters. And that iron hurt him. It hurt him. I mean, physically, it hurt him. And sometimes it's that way in life. I mean, you couldn't explain what Joseph was going through. Uh, his own family uh, wanted to kill him and sold him into slavery. Thought they'd never have to see him again. When he walked away behind that caravan, headed to an auction block in Egypt, they had no idea they'd see him sitting at the right hand of the throne of Egypt one day. They had no idea. God had plans for him. Now, Satan had plans for him, and his brothers had plans for him, but God had greater plans for Joseph's life. And if you're in a dark place today, it may be that God has greater purposes for you than you can see as a matter of fact, I've come to the place and experienced enough grief in my life uh, to where I don't look around wondering, when am I going to get out of this? But I look around wondering, now, God, what do you want me to get out of this? How are you going to, how are you going to work? Because he has vowed himself to work. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. He works it for good. You remember what Joseph would say to his brothers when they buried their old daddy Jacob, they thought he'll get us. He'll surely get us now. And they spoke to him about it. And he said, look, fellas, you did what you did. You meant evil. You did it for evil. He said, but God took all of it, the anger, the lies. God took every bit of it and worked it. For good. Matter of fact, he said, God took what you did and spared your life with the evil that you intended for me. Isn't that amazing how God, God so much God, he can use the devil uh, to get his bidding done. Isn't that something uh, we often hear? Um, and I'm not throwing off. I understand the gist of it. But we often hear preachers about uh, every so often they'll uh, set up this cosmic chess game between God and Satan as though Satan's got God now. He's, he's hit checkmate and he's got him backed in a corner and God's sweating and wiping the sweat off his brow. I'm going to tell you something. God can thump the devil and knock him from here to another galaxy. The devil's no match for God. You, that, the Bible never teaches the devil to be a match for God. He's a match for you, and he's a match for me, but he's not a match for our God. He's never lost a battle. Standing in a hospital room last year, someone tried to run it by me. The first time they did, the second time they did, but when they run it by me the third time, about Satan seems to be winning against God. I said, hang on a minute. I heard that two other times. But that ain't Bible. You didn't get that out of the Bible. You got that out of a cartoon somewhere. You didn't get that out of the Bible. God has never lost a battle, friend. He ain't going to start now. You may not understand what's going on in your life, but God understands. I promise you, God understands. He has a road map that is a whole lot clearer for your life and my life than what we can read in it. He sees and he knows. That ought to bring you comfort today, child of God. can be a dangerous path. The valley of the shadow of death being so narrow and so deep. Uh, another thing with those shepherds they have to watch for is, if they're not quite familiar, a deep, uh, a heavy fog settles in. And, and if there are gullies, washouts, 
They have to watch. They have to be careful. They have to take their time. If you aren't careful, when you go through a valley, you'll think, well, God doesn't care for me. The church doesn't care for me. Nobody checked on me. Nobody called me. And you know, that's a ploy of the devil, don't you? If the devil can get you feeling sorry for yourself over by yourself, look at what he did to Elijah. Look at how he went at Eve. He didn't go at Eve when Adam and Eve were together. He went at Eve when she was by herself, divided he can conquer. United, we'll be stronger together. Uh, there's strength. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us in two. And even stronger, there's a threefold cord that cannot be broken. That's why we need the church. That's why we need our brothers and sisters in Christ. It can be a very distanced path. Some people go into a trial, and then they're right back out of it. And some people go in trial and stay in trial after trial in 07, I've told you this, but it's been some time. In 07, Brother Dagenhart, Brother Steve was preaching right where Brother Ronnie Owen is preaching this morning. He and I have been preaching up there for a lot of years together. It's where I met Brother Steve. Um, he came to see me after morning services, that cornerstone in the camp meeting one year. Brother Don Sable was preaching in Union County, preaching revival. He met Brother Barnett for lunch, and he said, how's Brother Merritt? And he said, well, he's home. He said, he's having chemo, but I know he's home. He's back home by now. Both of those men come to see me, and both of those men ask the same question. How long? How long has this been going on? I said, right at a year. And both of them said the same thing with good intentions. Your year's almost up. And I know what they were referring to. We believe Job's trials lasted about a year. I didn't think I was anywhere near finished with them, and I wasn't. Matter of fact, this morning, uh, uh, about 5 o'clock, Brother David, I was thinking about uh, the Friday night at Billy and Jean Messer's house in Tupelo. Uh, we were hurting bad. And I don't even remember which one of y'all called. I don't know if it were you. I don't know if it was Brother Messer, uh, David and Peggy Box, Guy and Nita Patterson, Billy and Jean Messer, and Jerry and Tess Messer. Uh, they had supper for us on South uh, Thomas Street there Brother Billy's house. I always thought we were there, and they, them being kind, they reached into our lives financially. They reached into our lives a number of ways and ministered to us. I mean, we were going through it, and we were going through it. They weren't going through it, but they shared in the burden, tried to help ease some of the burden we were living under. We got through eating that night, and uh, Brother Messer, he pushed back from the table, and he said, he said, preacher, he said, now I'm just going to be honest with you. He said, you've already been through so much. He said, I don't think the devil's through with you. He said, I really think there's more to come. And I felt like there was more to come. It's two solid years of just, I'm talking about blow after blow. We wouldn't get through two or three blows. All that's still on us. There'd be more blows. But this is what he said. He said, we want to pray for you. He said, now, we, didn't, we had you over here so that, you, so that we could feed you. But he said, now, we want to pray. And you women gathered around Amanda and you men gathered there around the dining room area around me. They began to pray. And if you ask me to put on paper with a pencil and paper what happened in my life that night, I couldn't tell you what happened. I know, I know God picked me up and sent me on. I can't explain it to you. God did something as those men and those women prayed for me and my wife. My son was there that night. 
I didn't want to quit, but I'd thought about it a few times. Every time I'd think about it, some dear old saint somewhere would walk up to me. It's like I'd thrown the towel in, and they'd pick it up and throw it right back in my face and had no idea what they were. God used people in my life during that time. It was the lowest I've ever been in my life. And I, look, I'm not talking about 10 minutes of my life. I'm talking about two solid years of my life. And God did a work in my life. It was distanced, though. I don't look for when it's going to end anymore. When something begins to mount, I just, I look to him. And let me encourage you, dear heart, do the same. If he turns his back on you today, child of God, you'll be the first, and he ever did that to He never done any of his youngins that way. can be a very distressing thing, can it? The valley of the shadow of death comes from one Hebrew root word, it speaks of the valley of deep gloom. It actually can lend itself to depression. Uh, we often uh, talk about the valley of Baca uh, that the psalmist wrote about, the valley of tears and weeping. He said we'd, we, we'd dig a well there. As a matter of fact, Ron Martin, we were at Sardis Lake Baptist Church on a Sunday night. I was preaching. They were singing. And he got, uh, he got Kyla's books and gave them to Amanda. He hugged her up. And he rode in the front of one of them. And uh, he tried to encourage her. He said, dear sister. But when he signed his name, he signed Psalm uh, 84, who passing through the valley of Baca, dig a well. And he said, dear sister, you're digging. Keep digging. And we'll keep praying. Ah, you never know what God's up to. I said also to Brother Terrence recently, I said, before you can minister to people who have been crushed, you've got to be crushed, preacher. You'll have to be crushed. You can't minister to a hurting person unless you have hurt yourself. It was Tozier that said, it's doubtful God will ever use a man greatly until first he hurts him and hurts him deeply. That's the truth of the matter. You come to the book of 2 Corinthians, our New Testament, Job. Paul said we were pressed out of measure beyond strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul said, I thought that was the end, that I was going to die. But he said, God delivered me, brought me through it. And from his well, we still glean, don't we? Do you know your valley can be sickness? When you get, when you get weak physically, it can affect every other part of your being. It can affect your mind. It can affect your spirit if you don't remain close to the Lord. Uh, some of you have buried a spouse just like uh, Brother Terrence did yesterday. I had no idea I'd mention him now three times in the message today. That brother's going to need our prayers. He's a strong brother. He's been a model of grace, but he's going to need our prayers. Moyer spoke of bereavement being such a valley in his life. He said the shadows are very dark when we have to say goodbye to father or mother, sister or brother, husband or wife as they close their eyes in death. Many times the heart is so heavy that we want to die. To follow the dear one into the land beyond. He said the shadow is so black you wonder how the sun can shine and how the birds can sing. Ron Dunn was used greatly of the Lord, especially in the 80s. He preached on suffering a lot. And out of the blue, one of his teenage sons committed suicide. 
the day after the funeral, the surviving children wanted to know, do we go to school? Do we? And he said, we're going on with life. He would drive them to school that morning, but he said he was in such despair. He said, sitting at the red light, he saw people talking in the car next to him. He said he saw people that he was meeting on the street, even letting their children out at school. They were smiling. And he said, I thought to myself, do they not know I buried my son yesterday? What are they laughing at? And he said, about that time, he said, the quartet come across, come across the radio singing, the sun, sun's going to come up in the morning. And he said, I pulled over and wept and thanked God. You never know what you're going to face, child of God. I'm not trying to scare you. Uh, one dear brother, I'm trying to move. One dear brother, he was in a battle in his church, and I knew about it. A lot of the guys didn't that he's preached for, but I knew about it. I was privy to some things he shared with me. And some men who have preached for him, and he's preached for, I called them. I did it on purpose. I called them, and I said, look, you're not supposed to know anything. He's struggling. You just need to know he's struggling. Don't everybody call him at one time, but call him. Uh, send him a note, shoot him a text, call him, do something to try to encourage him. Most of us preachers carry burdens that uh, we never uttered to anybody else, carry a lot of burdens for other folk. Um, um, I carry some burden for a handful of churches right now looking for recommendations. I appreciate their confidence. I try to pray about those matters. Um, but they did. They took a day about there for a number of days and called my preacher friend. Probably two to three months later, we run up on one another, and he said, uh, by the way, he said, I know what you did. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know what I'm talking about. He said, I know what you did. And he said, I appreciate it. It met a need in my life. But he said, trial, adversity, and affliction, he said, no, we don't like it. But then on the other hand, spiritually, we welcome it because we know God's going to work more grace in our lives. But he said, thank you for what you did. If you know if somebody's struggling, try to be a help to them. Pray for this family. Pray for that sister. Um, pray for others around about you that's struggling. Uh, you will have your turn. Uh, you will have your days and nights. It's coming. Man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of troubles. You ever ask the question, how are they going to make it? I've left emergency rooms and intensive care waiting rooms, and I've left funeral homes before, and, and I thought, I don't know how in the world they're going to make it. They don't know the Lord. They don't care about the Lord. They care nothing about God. As a matter of fact, some of them will have a funeral, and after the funeral, everybody gets drunk and high as a kite. How's that a way to celebrate a life? Paul would write, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. We sorrow. We don't sorrow like the world. Thank God when our loved ones go home, but we miss them, we can rejoice in it. Let me say just a brief word about the purpose for the valley. Why? If God's God and he is, why? Why do we go through hurtful times? Well, sin is the answer for that. Sin. Don't ever get mad at God. God doesn't owe you anything. 
you don't get mad at somebody or something, get mad at sin. Sin is the author of every war. Sin is the author of every broken heart, every divorce, every broken-hearted child. Sin is the author of um, somebody smashing their brains out under uh, intoxication. Sin is, uh, is the author of one of our men in, in, in the Bible Institute Thursday night. I, I know him. I, I said that. I was talking about the. I can't get off of it these days. But talking about the change that Christ that works in a life. And I looked at him and I said, Zach, I know a little something about your life. You probably ought to have died with a needle broke off in your arm somewhere. Uh, the purpose for the valley. Why do we go through what we go through with? Well, sin's the author of it. And that don't mean you have to rob a bank in order to suffer. You're going to get some of that because you were born into Adam's fallen race. It's part of the journey. It's part of the trip. It's part of the trek we're going to make and leave behind. Over 400 times the Bible asks the question, why? Very rarely does it ever answer it. God doesn't know us a why. We don't live on explanation. We live on principle. We live on promise. That's where we live. You say, but preacher, I want to see. You don't have to see. We've got somebody that's driving the ship. He sees all. And that's where my confidence is, and I trust that's where yours is. Why do we go through? Let me just give you, let me give you a stab or two here, and then I'll bring my part of the service to a close. Why do we go through what we go through with in life? It is for God's glory. Mark that down. It's not for my own glory. It's for his glory. I was thinking about, as I often do, considering this, why. thought about Simon Peter, even the sin in his life. You remember what the Lord said to him? He said, you're going to deny me, Simon. Matter of fact, you'll do it publicly, and you'll do it three times. He didn't tell him, but when he did that, he would then look at him after the cock crowed the last time. He looked him in the eye. Simon couldn't face him. He turned and went out and wept bitterly and spent the longest night of his life. But he'd already told him, Simon, the longest day of your life, you're fixing to spend it. But a better day's coming. He said, when thou art converted, when you stand again, I will restore you, Simon. Aren't you glad for the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance? And The apostle Paul wrote John Mark off. You remember that? Headed out for the second missionary journey. Barnabas said, my nephew, Mark, John Mark, he wants to go with us again. He said, he ain't going with me. When I was stoned in Lystra, he went back home. He Tucked tail and ran. He's not going with me. Barnabas, true to his character, he said, I'll take him with me. And before Paul died, uh, he said something about John Mark, what he meant to him. He wrote the second gospel of the New Testament, Mark. He could talk to us. Simon Peter could talk. When you get to heaven, look up Adam and Eve. They can talk to you about the God who has mercy and the God of the second chance. You know, whenever God forgives somebody like a brand new baby, you don't have a past anymore. Isn't that wonderful? That's forgiveness. That's freedom in Christ for God's glory. Look at Simon Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost with the boldness of a lion. Listen to him as he writes to the suffering servants in 1 Peter. 
Listen to him as he's the aged, mature teacher now as he writes the book of knowledge, the book of 2 Peter. I tell you, God gets glory from that. He couldn't have done it on his own. Why do we go through what we go through with? Some of my, uh, some of the verses that's been the most help to me is found in James when it concerns trials in the believer's life. Listen to James 1. I think I can quote them, but for sake of missing something, listen to James 1, verses 2 to 4. He wrote, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That means different kinds of testings. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that is her whole, complete work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. For maturity's sake, we go through diverse testings and trials because God matures us through it all. He works patience in our lives. I've heard different men, I've heard different men stand and, and pray, and God give me patience, and I'd almost cringe. You know how you get that, don't you? Tribulation worketh patience. One such young man told his pastor, pray that God give me more patience. And he said, let's pray. He prayed for flat tires and a car engine that would break down and a refrigerator that'd take. He said, wait a minute. He said, I said patience. And he said, that's what I'm praying for, son. He said, that's where you learn to be patient. Is in tribulation and trial. Hanley Milby talked about his brother being in the Korean um, War. It's called the conflict, you know. I believe it's in Korea. Said that there were those that were bragging about what they'd done in battle. And said that he'd always noticed the old heads would get up and get away from all that kind of talk. So he asked a couple of the older men. He said, what about it? Is it really like that? And said the old man that responded said, absolutely not. Battle's not anything like that. Said you... You survive best you can, and, and you don't brag about it when it's over with. As a matter of fact, I've known men that went to Vietnam, saw real battle. Daryl Brindle saw, saw actual battle, combat. He had to do what he had to do. I have a friend of mine, I talked to him, who had to use a handgun some years back. And I said, brother, what can he He said, he can't do anything but go on and look to the law. He can't do anything. Defended himself. Uh Maturity does not boast and brag, expects nothing, demands nothing. Why do we go through what we go through with? We do it for ministry's sake. Listen to a verse here, and I'm almost done. I promise you I'll not keep you much longer. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 4. The Bible says, Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You know what that says? That says everything is a child of God that you go through. God will take it, reach in your life, and touch another life with it. And you'll minister to them. For ministry's sake, you go through what you go through with. For testimony's sake, a man neither lives to himself nor does he die to himself. There'll be people that'll call on you throughout life if you'll be faithful and consistent. Keep a Christ-like attitude. You'll be approachable. And somebody who's hurting is going to need a word one of these days, and you'll have a word of encouragement for them or a word of comfort. You'll stay with God. Crossing the valleys of life. We have to cross them, don't we? 
I won't take you through it, but verses 1, 2, and 3, the psalmist is talking about the shepherd. He leadeth me. He restoreth me. He. But when you come to the valley, he starts talking to him. And you will too. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. The valleys of life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, he said, I'm familiar with you, your rod and your staff. You and they bring me comfort. Let's stand. Miss Angie, if you'd come to the piano, please, ma'am.